This week on Writers, Inc. It takes discipline. There are a lot of days you don't want to be sitting at your computer. You'd rather be out doing anything else. But um, I just would uh, say to myself, I have this block of time, and I'm going to use that for writing. And you just have to stick to that. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Finally got my voice back. Yeah, yeah, for, you're for the on most the part. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ember was the first one to recover. Um, you know, my wife is, is, is slowly getting better, too. Um, so now we've got a healthy toddler that wants to do nothing but play and two adults that are just kind of dragging ass around the house. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all getting there. Well, the rest of the world is getting sick, apparently. So. Yeah, this is uh, we were talking a, a little bit of uh, off camera about this. It, it's it's mid-March as we're recording this episode and uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus the panic seems to be preceding the, the, the actual events, but um, you're getting ready to, to go to an event, uh, a writer event. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what your thoughts are on what this is and how it's impacting your business as an author. Yeah, it's um, I, I had to think long and hard about this one, about whether I even wanted to go. Um, but you know, I'm keynoting a, a conference that's in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of people basically depending on me being there. Uh, you know, if I back out, you know, they, they've obviously they've got other stuff going on. But, you know, if their keynote walks out, you know, half, half the program falls apart. Um, and, you know, the larger conferences, for the most part, I think they, they pick up insurance for this sort of thing. But, you know, a conference of this size, I don't think they have it. Um, so that can bankrupt people um, like the, the Romance Writers Association. I don't know if they, how closely you're following that, but I, I believe canceling their conference has cost them somewhere around six hundred thousand oh. dollars. Um, which is a big hit to, to any organization. Um, you know, so like I, I've got thoughts like that. Um, at the same time, I've got um, cases of Perel. You know, like I, <laughs> I, I'm basically going to have a no handshaking policy. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of if anybody's a close talker, I, I hope they, <laughs> they've, they've adjusted. Um, you know, and I'm just going to go and, and do my thing and just, you know, hopefully we'll all just kind of steer clear, you know, steer, stay far enough away from each other where it's not going to be a problem. I'm hoping if anybody is sick that they, they've got the common sense to, um, you know, to not come, you know, just stay home. I think that's one of the biggest problems with something like this is, you know, people tend to, to go through their day. I mean, we, we ended up catching this last virus that we have from somebody that's working on the staircase in our house, you know, like he came to work, you know, he touched everything and, and ended up, you know, passing on a, a virus to us, you know, that, that sent us back for a couple of weeks and it doesn't take much. Um, you know, so people exchanging, you know, business cards, you know, papers, you know, whatever it might be sitting, you know, it's a conference. People are sharing the same chairs, you know, they're, they're all touching the same, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. I'm probably going to bring gloves, you know, I'll, I'll look silly, 
um, with, with the latex gloves on. But I, I heard a rumor like years, years back that um, Michael Jackson, one of the reasons he actually wore the glove was because he got sick all the time from shaking people's hands. Um, so he started wearing a, a single glove. And then you know, the other rumor is that he wore it because of that skin condition he had. And I've got no idea which is true, but like I, I, I shake a lot of hands, you know, yeah. and, and and I'm like, you know, this Michael guy might have been onto something. Yeah. Um, you know, like if, if, if handshaking is even going to continue, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, cause like it's, it's an old tradition and it, it's a Western tradition, you know, in a lot of places, you know, they, they don't do that. You know, the fist pumping, I think to a lot large extent has, has taken over. Um, but anyway, to get back to your topic, I, I, it's, I'm trying to adjust. I'm not booking anything else right now. I, I don't want to do any appearances at bookstores. Um, my next conference that I've got officially on the books is Thriller Fest in July. So I'm hoping that this thing is, is going to wrap up by then. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just, I'm turning down anything that, that comes my way. Um, and those seem to be drying up. You know, a lot of things are just getting canceled. A lot of people are realizing even if they want to organize something like that, nobody's going to come. You know, it's, it's just, it's too dangerous. Who wants to stand in a big crowd of people right now with all of this going on? Um, yeah. we'll, we'll come up, we'll come out the other side of it. Uh, it's the panic. I think that's what you, you yeah. just mentioned it. That's, that's the biggest problem here. Like if you walk into a Walmart right now or walk into a store that the shelves are bare, people are freaking out. They're buying up all the toilet paper. They're buying up all the Mac and cheese. They're buying up all the beer. Um, they should be buying up books because if you want to survive <laughs> an apocalypse, you're going to need something to read. You need some entertainment. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, like people are just doing that and like, they don't know why, you know, they're just, they're just panic buying. And, and that's, that's scary too, because we're going to have supply chain issues. It's going to be difficult to get some of these things later. Um, if everybody were to keep calm and behave, you know, there'd be plenty to go around, but you know, if, if people are buying cases of toilet paper and hoarding them in their garage, you know, that's, that's cases of toilet paper that aren't going to other people. Um, and I, I really wish people could be a little bit more cognizant of that, but you know, it's, we, we all turn into animals, you know, <laughs> I lived in Florida for years and, and I used to see this when, when hurricanes hit, you know, storm would hit, the power would go out and it would take maybe a day for anybody to just start to devolve. Um, and it, and it was sad. And then that power would come back and everybody would be all smiles and thank you. And, you know, move on as if nothing happened, but, um, yeah, that's where that's where we're at right now. Yeah, we're keeping a close eye on it because we have the Career Author Summit scheduled in mid-May in Nashville, and uh, you know, as of today, we're going on with it. I mean, it's a 125-person event, so it's not it's not massive, but at the same time, you know, it, it's it's hard to trust what you hear in the media because the media isn't the news the way it was in the 40s or 50s. The media now is all about views and clicks and eyeballs, and they're feeding into the panic and and they're uh, you know, they're reporting in ways that uh, causes anxiety. So it's really hard to, for me as an event organizer to figure out like where, where, sh where, and when should I be concerned? Yeah, they're, they're fueling this for sure. I, I, I tend to look at the stats, you know, like the flu virus kills way more people than this virus has. Um, this virus is more contagious. Um, that being said, the people that are actually dying from it tend to be the elderly or the people that are already sick. Um, it's, it's not striking down, you know, healthy individuals, at least not yet, um, or that we've seen, um, you know, so just try to focus on that. You know, I, I try to get my news from as many different sources as possible, knowing that each one is probably halfway, you know, half true and just try to piece it together on my own. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, we'll see where we end up. It seems like if, uh, the early indications are that what's happening in South Korea now is the best indicator because you can't really rely on what comes out of China. But in South Korea, it seems like the case has plateaued. The rate of infection has, has significantly decreased. 
and so it seems like the the measures that have been put in place in South Korea are working, and and hopefully that'll happen in in the states and in the Western world too. Yeah, I'm hoping to see that here, and plus we're starting to warm up too. I think with with spring coming, that's going to help quite a bit too. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. It, it's sort of an unofficial tie-in to our guest this week, <laughs> yeah. talking some science on the podcast. Yeah, we should be asking her. <laughs> uh, so you want, so, would you like to introduce yeah, her? Yeah, so, so we've, we've got Kathy Reichs, um, a fantastic author, a doctor, um, and she's most known for, for the Temperance, um, Temperance Brennan books um, about it about a doctor. Um, and I, it, it's one of my favorite characters. I mentioned this the last time. It's, it's very difficult to create a character in the thriller world that hasn't been done yet. Um, you know, police detective being the default. Um, but, you know, if you can come up with a unique twist on the police detective, um, that, you know, something unique that nobody has done, it, it can really catapult your career. And, and she did it with, with Temperance Brennan, um, just like Jeffrey Deaver did it with, um, you know, with his characters. Yeah, so Temperance Brennan, she's a forensic pathologist, um, you know, somebody who studies the, the bones of the victims that are brought into the morgue. And, and in most cases, she helps ID them. She helps the police, you know, uncover the, the crime and, and help solve it. Um, but it's just, it's, a, again, a very unique twist and it hasn't been done before. And with her medical background, you know, she's able to throw in a lot of you know, jargon, a lot of technical details that we know are correct. Because uh, there's nothing more frustrating than, than to read a, a medical or a scientific, you know, based book or something and, and have facts out there that are just completely bogus where somebody just didn't take the time to research. And, you know, in Kathy's case, that's that's not true, that 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 information is is accurate. So always a fun read. Um, it's a great TV show. I'm sure it's probably streaming somewhere where you could catch it. Um, but I'm reading her new book right now, and it, it's fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to hear, hearing what she has to say. Yeah, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. The new one is book 19 in the series, Conspiracy of Bones. So uh, make sure you wow. guys check that out if uh, if you're interested. But 19. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we can uh, get into the interview, and then we'll come back on the flip side and talk about some of the gems we got in there. Okay. Here she is, Kathy Reichs. You've got a new uh, Temperance Brennan novel out. Can you tell us about it? Well, I do. It will be out March 17th. Um, it's called A Conspiracy of Bones. And it's a little bit different um, from the other ones. It's number 19 in the series. Um, what can I tell you about it? Uh, it involves a brain lesion, a faceless corpse, um, exile, uh, conspiracy theories, and um, I guess the exploitation of the vulnerable, if I were to do a bullet list of the main wow. points. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, this is a complicated one. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, and I, I think, too, that uh, Temperance, the character, is in a little different place in the beginning of this book. Uh, is that true? It's definitely true. Um, she has had some health issues, and she, she's ha had surgery for an aneurysm. She's fine, but as a result, she's having some migraine headaches, and she is finding herself in the unique situation for her of not fully being able to trust her own perceptions. The story starts, she's awake in the middle of the night because she's had a nightmare, and she thinks she sees a prowler out on the grounds of her complex where she lives, but she can't be absolutely certain that he was really there. The other problem she's having is that there's a new boss at the medical examiner office in Charlotte, and she and this woman, Margot Hevner, have had history. They do not get along, and Hevner has, as the new boss, has exiled her from the ME office. So she 
finds herself working on a case, but she has to do it outside the system, kind of relying on her colleagues and going rogue, as it were. Interesting. And um, was this a a change for her that you had planned? Is this something that sort of evolved through the series? How did the, how did this come about? Well, yes. I always want to try something different. You don't want to write the same book every time. Right. So I wanted to put Tempe in a place. She's not in a good place. So she's got these health issues going on. She's got this bad situation in her workplace. In other words, she's been banned from the workplace. So she's got a lot of stress. She's under stress because she is uncertain about her relationship with Ryan and she's agreed to live with him. So that is another stressor that she's dealing with. And um, what happens is, is, is she receives these text messages early in the story and they contain images of a faceless corpse. The corpse has no face, no hands, no teeth. Obviously, it cannot be identified by normal means. And yet, the medical examiner will not call her in to work on this case. And she becomes, for various reasons, very committed to getting this victim identified. Yeah, that that is fascinating. And I'm also fascinated by the way you incorporate uh, sort of the, the latest technology into your fiction. Uh, and in someone who's been writing fiction for a long time, I- I'm sure that wasn't always easy. Uh, I've heard that horror writers say, you know, cell phones have spoiled s- some plot devices. <laughs> uh, so were you in sort of intentionally working in more of a 21st century technology vibe for this book too? Yeah, well, I always do. Um, I write thrillers, which are murder mysteries. Um, the difference is that the solution in my books is driven by science. And that just makes sense for me because I am a forensic scientist. I have worked my entire career in medical legal crime lab context. So I'm very familiar with what goes on in the crime lab, what goes on in the autopsy room. So it just makes sense for me to incorporate that into my stories. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I read in, in, in an interview one time, you said that you're your sort of unofficial role for, for the Bones uh, TV series was to keep the science on track. Uh, so I'm wondering if you have an example off the top of your head where, where maybe they were headed in a certain direction and you kind of had to point them in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I did read every one of our, I think we did 246 episodes and I read every, I wrote some, but I read every single script for the show. I remember when I showed up for the pilot, we were filming the pilot and I hadn't really gotten to know our executive producers very well at that point. Our showrunner, um, Hart Hansen, who was absolutely fantastic. And they took me out to where we were filming that day. We were filming on location. It, the episode was called The Lady in the Lake. All of our episodes were called something like the girl in the box or the boy in the tree or the lady in the lake, whatever. Anyway, so they showed me these remains that were supposed to have, and our props people were amazing at the special effects they could come up with all the different bodies. If you've seen the show, you know it opens right. <laughs> every episode with, with a, a set of remains that are not in good shape. Anyway, they show me this lady in the lake, and she's been underwater for two years, and there are these wonderful glistening intestines which have ballooned up. And I looked at them and I said, two years underwater. <laughs> no, let's lose the intestines. <laughs> so that, that, that example comes to mind. 
Yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, I, I know that you've also, uh, you've had a long uh, career in academia and I, I'm really curious, uh, about your, one of the changes, many changes you've made in, in your career. Uh, and this is, this is in the nineties in an NPR interview, you said, uh, yeah, I just thought it would be fun to write fiction. And, and two years later you had Deja Dead and that was a, a breakout novel for you. So I, I'm wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, how you went from, hey, this is a good idea to, to publishing a novel, which is something most people find is unfathomable. Yeah, my story is, is not typical, and I wouldn't recommend this approach to any beginning writers. Um, what happened with me is I made full professor at the university, which is the highest rank you can attain. So I was free to do whatever I wanted to do, basically. And I didn't want to write you know, another journal article or a textbook. I had done that. And also, at that time, I had just, uh, so I thought fiction would be fun. I thought it would, as you said, be fun to try something completely different. And I thought maybe nobody had heard of forensic anthropology back then. I thought, well, maybe I can bring my science to a broader audience, a general audience, which you're not going to do with a very technical textbook. Um, and I had also just finished working on a serial murder case in Montreal, that had some, uh, because I did the work uh, for decades, I did all of the forensic anthropology at the main medical legal crime lab in Montreal for the whole province of Quebec. So I had just finished doing a very interesting uh, serial murder case with some elements to it that were pretty unique. So I had the freedom to do something new. And I had the idea, uh, for, which I drew from an actual case. So those two elements came together in the mid-1990s, and that's when I decided that I would sit down and write um, a fiction, fiction. I would write a novel. I would write a thriller. And you had never written any long-form fiction prior to this? Nothing other than my resume, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so where, I mean, not knowing what you were doing, where did you begin? Did you, did you take a course? Did you contact a friend? I did. No, I really didn't, um, because when you write fiction in an English department, when you do a novel, you're you're a hero. But if you do it in a science department, you know you're <laughs> you're a little bit suspect. <laughs> so I, I really didn't tell anyone I was writing the book. Maybe my family, because I wanted them to leave me alone. You know, when I close my office door, I'm writing, and they'd kind of roll their eyes and go, "Oh yeah, mom's writing her novel." Anyway, um, I really didn't tell anyone. Um, I wrote, uh, because I was teaching full-time, I would have to get up uh, like at 5.36 in the morning, which I do not like, and write for a couple hours before going on campus. And then I would write on weekends. I would write on, you know, during vacations and summer breaks. So it took two years to write the first book. But I just, um, I decided to write the kind of book I like to read. I really didn't have any uh training in writing. I avoided literature classes in university. I preferred to be over, you know, taking physiology or taking zoology in the science lab. So um, I wrote a partial manuscript and I did let a friend look at it. And she said, you know what, this is really boring. <laughs> so I read it and I thought, you know, she's right. This really is boring. It was written in third person voice. And so I trashed that I kept the idea of the Temperance Brennan character. I switched to first-person voice, and for me, that just really worked. And then I told myself, I will finish this book no matter what. I will finish it, and I will submit it to – I had a figure of number of reject slips 
I would accept and then go back to my day job. So I said, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to, you know, send it out. And, um, and that's what I did. I, I just sat down and wrote the book. Um, yeah. Wow. And so. now, now, I mean, so many novels later, do you have a, a daily or a morning routine that involves your writing or, or are you sort of every day is a different challenge? No, I really, I'm a much, I'm not an early dawn riser, but I'm a much better morning working person. So I do try to get at my computer um, in the morning, every morning that I'm home, when I have a book due. Um, and I try to put in, you know, at least four or five hours on on the writing. Um, my routine is that instead of sharpening pencils and things, I go through my email and I putz around with that for a while. And then <clears throat> I start writing and I just, by the time I look up at the clock, it's, it's been three or four hours later. Yes. The zone. <laughs> yeah. In the zone. Exactly. Right. Right. You clearly had a lot of things going on, especially early on when, when you had a younger family. So uh, did you consider yourself in work-life balance or what does that even mean to you? Well, it is a challenge. It's a challenge for every working mother, uh, fathers too, I'm sure, but I think more so for working mothers. So I was teaching full-time at university. I was commuting between Charlotte, North Carolina, and Montreal. Uh, I'd go up for, I don't know, a week out of, one week out of every six or so to do the casework there. Um, and, and as you say, raising a young family and then trying to write a book on the side as well. So yeah, it was a pretty demanding schedule. Um, it, it, it takes discipline. There are a lot of days you don't want to be sitting at your computer. You'd rather be out doing anything else. But um, I just would uh, say to myself, I have this block of time and I'm going to use that for writing. And you just have to stick to that. Uh, is that. Is it easier or harder for you now than it was then? Um, in some ways, it's easier. Um, uh, my kids are grown. I now have grandchildren, though, so I'd much <laughs> rather be out there with them. I often I have an office uh, in my home in Charlotte, and I have an office in my beach house uh, down near Charleston, South Carolina. And I'll be sitting, looking out my window, watching them all go down to the beach <laughs> while I'm up there at my computer writing. So you know that's hard. Um, it one of the things that gets harder with a continuing character series is that with each book, and I'm now working on number 20 in this series, with each book, you have to reintroduce your characters, Temperance Brennan, Andrew Ryan, Skinny Slidell, in my case, because, but you have to do it in a unique and creative and interesting way. Because for any reader, that may be the 20th book they're reading, and they know the characters. But for any other reader, it might be the very first book in the series they're picking up. So you have to introduce the characters, but you don't want to bore your continuing readers. So that part gets more and more challenging, I think. Yes, I could imagine. And you you uh, now split time. You're from Chicago, but you split time between Charlotte and Montreal. Uh, Charlotte, you were, you were teaching there. Montreal, is that a city you fell in love with after doing casework there? It, it, well, actually, I went there. Um, I did fall in love with the city. I went there on something called National Faculty Exchange. It's a program where, whereby a professor at one university changes places for a year with a professor at another university. 
So um, I had just taken a French class, French 101, and this notice about the NFE, the National Faculty Exchange Program, came through at a faculty meeting. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, I speak French. I've had one whole course in it. Um, I'll, I'll do this. So I did that. I changed places with a professor from Concordia University, one of the English language universities in Montreal. And while I was up there for that year, I taught at Concordia and also at McGill. And that was when I was approached by the, uh, the forensic lab to ask if I would do the work for them. They needed someone who was board certified in forensic anthropology and someone who could work in French. So I said, may we? <laughs> I can do that. So um, I started working there then. And at the end of the year, when I returned to Charlotte, um, we just figured out this arrangement whereby I would commute. I would fly back and forth between the two cities. Excellent. And in in uh, Canada, you did a wonderful TEDx Ottawa talk. And the theme of that you you referenced several several times was changing the narrative, so I'm wondering how you've been able to uh, constantly reinvent yourself or or foster positive change in your career and in your life. Well, that what that was a good conference and it was a good topic. Changing the narrative was their idea, certainly not mine, but um, I like the idea of particularly addressing students and kids who think, oh my heavens, I have to. Uh, figure out what I'm going to major in, and then I'm stuck with it the rest of my life. My point to them was, you're not stuck with it. You can major in, for example, forensic in anthropology. And I started out as an archaeologist. I started out in bioarchaeology, looking at ancient skeletons, ancient bones. And then from that, I shifted into forensics. I retrained, became board certified, and started working in crime labs and, and uh, medical examiner's offices. And then I shifted to writing commercial fiction and then eventually shifted into writing um, and production for television. So given that I had my training in the human skeleton, let's say, I was able to shift to change the narrative, to shift from one path to, to another path to another path, all of which was linked together by, by bones. So that was the message I wanted to get across in that TED Talk. Yeah, it's very relevant too in a, in a day and age where people don't stay in, in the same career for decades the way they used to. I think it is really important to have a core skill set that you can transfer into parallel directions. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I uh, I really appreciate the time uh, that you've, you've spent with us today. And, and I have sort of a culminating question for you, and you can answer this however you like. But I'm, I'm curious uh, where you think the publishing industry is headed in the next, say, five to ten years. Oh my goodness. Um, well, like any, like everything else right now, everything is shifting. Um, it's, digital is certainly becoming more important. Um, and I think publishing houses are shifting their model somewhat to go along with that uh, technological change. But I think there's always going to be an element of people who just love books and love to feel a book and smell a book and hold a book and read it in the traditional hardcover or paperback format. So I think that's always going to exist in the publishing industry, while at the same time, they are adding the digital option to those who prefer to read on a device of some kind. Excellent. Yeah. Have you uh, listened to or explored audiobooks at, at any point? I do. Um, I like audiobooks, and all of mine are out in audio format. Um, I like them when I'm driving, <laughs> yes. because you can't read. You can't hold a 
you know, a real book. But I do like, I drive, it's a little over three hours between my home in Charlotte and my beach home. And um, I love to listen to audiobooks to to pass the time. And also sometimes when I'm working out, when I'm running on the treadmill or the elliptical, I will listen to audiobooks through earphones. Yes. I would have to imagine as long as you are telling a good story, the medium won't be nearly as important as the storytelling itself. I completely agree with that. All right. That is the interview with Kathy Reich. So uh, what'd you think, JD? What, what were the nuggets of wisdom you found in that interview? Again, she's just a, a very fascinating person to listen to. I mean, what did you take away? You always ask me, like, what were your takeaways? Yeah, I think the big one for me uh, was she talked about writing with young kids and, and sort of the work-life balance and how much she had going on and, and how she was you know, trying to manage a family and, and take care of the house and finding these snippets to write in between. And I, I find that really inspirational because I think from the outside, we view authors of, of this stature and think, wow, they're just sort of sitting in a room in a cabin in the woods, just happily typing away for eight hours a day. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, we heard that with Mercedes a couple interviews back too. And, and, and I, I mean, I, I'm like, just hands down inspired by by women or people in general that can that can do this because it's so difficult to just sit down and write a book just if you had the ability to go into a cabin all by yourself with a typewriter or computer or whatever and just pound out a novel that's hard enough by itself but when you've got kids you know screaming around you and you're trying to get lunches ready and you're trying to get them off to school and you're trying to get their homework done and to juggle all of that along with it is is near impossible and i i see it on my side with my wife because you know i'm writing full-time um She's got an agent in a novel that's being shopped right now. Um, you know, so she's, she's in the mix of that too. And she's taking care of our toddler while she's doing all that. And I know how difficult it is. I mean, I see her there, you know, balancing her laptop on with one hand and playing, <laughs> you know, playing blocks with the other hand. And, um, you know, like I, I can't do it. Like, and I think it's partly the Aspie and me and just, I, I'm just so focused on stuff when I'm working. Like it's very difficult for me to concentrate if I've got any kind of distraction like that going on. Um, so she's nice enough to carve out, you know, time where I can you know, lock myself in my office and, and get it done. Um, but for the people that don't have that, um, you know, and still, still manage to get books done, manage to get a career together, you know, more power to them. Yeah. I, I also found it really powerful to hear her talk about how she, how she fosters change in her life. Like she, if you look at everything that Kathy's done in her career, it's it's crazy the, the the things and that she's done that she's written that she's taught from being a university professor to you know serving in committees on in DC like it's she's constantly fostering change and I really like that growth mindset. Yeah, and, and you know that helps her grow as an author too. You know all all these different things because if you you know if you are locked in that cabin and you're all by yourself writing that book and then writing the next book and writing the next book, you're not growing. Um, so I think putting yourself in those scenarios is, is helpful, you know, to, to expand your, your abilities. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I thought it was a, you know, a fascinating look at someone who's, who's been in this industry for a long time and had a lot of success at it. And uh, I think there were a lot of lessons to be learned there. Yeah, she's great. I can't wait to read the next one. Yeah, nice. So who is on our schedule for next week? Next week, we have Jeffrey Deaver. Now, Jeff is somebody um, I, I, I hounded him at the beginning of, of my writing career. Um, when I first wrote Forsaken, I was trying to get blurbs. And I remember he was coming to West Palm Beach and I happened to be in the area. So I went to see him at a library talk. 
Um, and I was hoping I could, you know, just hand it, hand him a book and he would give me a blurb and, you know, similar to the, the Stephen King scenario that I told you about before. Right. Um, so I, I got to talk to him a little bit. I gave him the book and he's like, you know, I'm on tour. I just, I really don't have time. Uh, but me being the tenacious jerk that I am, I'm like, <laughs> well, how about if I give you a short story, just a couple pages, you know, this way you can, you can read that, give me your blurb and then, you know, be on your way. Um, and you know, any, anybody with half a brain would have probably said no. Um, but, but Jeff is such a nice, kind guy. He, he couldn't. Um, and, and he did, he gave me a fantastic blurb, um, which I still use today. Um, he's, he's one of those guys that's, that's very generous. Um, he understands just how difficult it is to break into this business. Um, and he's written a, a, a slew of, of different types of books. Like he's one of these guys that loves to challenge himself. One of the reasons that I had actually found him, I read a book called the October list, um, which is a book that he wrote backwards. It actually starts wow. at the end of the story and it works its way forward until it gets basically the last pages, the beginning of the book. Um, and it's fascinating to just read, you know, the way that that unfolds because it unfolds perfect. You know, like it's, it's still a thriller. It's still like, he's got all the elements there, but because he just you know put it on its head, it's, it's just such a different story. It's entertaining. Um, he told me later that his, his agent and his, his editor said, please don't ever do this again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, but the, the book is, is great and everybody, everybody loved it. And you know, he, he's constantly doing that. He wrote a James Bond book, um, you know, which I would love to do. Um, so, so things like that. And he just, he created a new character now with Colton Shaw. Um, he's got some very memorable characters out there. Catherine Dance is one of my, my favorites. Um, you know, he's got the TV show now with, with Bone Collector. So people are finally getting, getting turned on to that. Um, again, you know, for the second time because it was a movie back in the day. Um, but yeah, a fascinating guy. I can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Excellent, man. You got to be careful. Uh, you're going to be getting a slew of short stories in your inbox, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. I've never been able to do. I, I've written a couple of short stories, but they always seem to grow up into novels. Like I can never seem to, to you know, tie it all up in just a couple of pages. I mean, got a few, but it's the novels to me just feel right. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. All right. Well, uh, I hope you have a, a great talk at your conference and everything goes well. And uh, we'll be back here next week. All right. We'll talk soon. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.